if you're a note taker, obviously the notes are in the app. Anything we put up on the screen are in the app. But let me give you just kind of a main idea for today. Today we're going to talk about the servant of the Lord. <clears throat> Isaiah 42 proclaims Christ hundreds of years in advance, telling of God's servant, establishing God's kingdom, calling people to repent of idolatry and worship God alone. We worship God by learning about Jesus and living as Jesus lived, right? We learn about God. We worship God by learning about Jesus, by knowing what it looks like to live in this world and bring glory to God. That's what Jesus did for us, among many, many other things. Jesus came and he showed us what it looks like to live the life that we were created to live. So we're going to pick up in Isaiah chapter 42. That passage we just read, verse 1 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So if you were to, if you have any kind of background in the Bible, if you have any understanding at all of the Bible, which maybe you don't, and that's okay. If you do, this, this passage is, is one of those passages you just read, and it's really super obvious, right? Isaiah's writing this, and this was written roughly 800 years before Jesus was born. It was then sealed up as the people of God were disobedient, and then as God is delivering them from Babylonian captivity, a captivity that he caused due to their disobedience, as God is liberating them from Babylon, the disciples of Isaiah begin to read the rest of the story. So imagine this. Most of you guys are, you know, have seen Star Wars or are Star Wars fans, right? It's, you get them in, in pieces, right? If, you know, if we've seen nine of them now, you get them in pieces. It's like reading some of it. As Isaiah gets the whole thing start to finish, it's like proclaiming some of it to the people. But because they're not listening, because they're not obedient, because they're not turning and living the way God has called them to, God begins to lift his hand off them. So Isaiah continues to tell them, listen, God wants to redeem us. God wants to heal us. We've got to return back to God. We've got to forsake the idols of the land. We've got to, we've got to give up false worship. We've got to press into God, but the people aren't listening. There's one pocket of people for a short time that turn and are, are repentant and, and focus on God, and God actually protects them. But then even them and, and their leader, their king... Even them begin to turn back to their old ways. And so God allows them to be taken captive in Babylon. In fact, more than allows them, God causes Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to come in and conquer them and enslave them. And as that happens, Isaiah stops telling the story, stops telling the people what God has for them. And he says, you know what? We're going to seal this up until you're ready to listen. And so they go through this hundred years of disobedience. And finally, as they're coming out of Babylonian captivity, Isaiah, now dead, speaks through his disciples who still have his message, the message of God through Isaiah. And now they're starting to tell them, listen, as we return, as we go back to Jerusalem, as we begin to rebuild, as we begin to do this, we've got to remember what got us in all the trouble in the first place. How do we live differently? And then what is the rest of what God wanted to say through Isaiah that's for us? And that's where we pick up today. And God has been promising, listen, I am bringing to you a redeemed world. 
If you follow me and trust me, I will fix the world we live in. I will return and reign, and I will do, th- do this through a Messiah, through the promised one that God has been promising since the beginning of time. Since sin entered into human history, God has promised a Savior. And so now God is narrowing this, this story in, and he's talked about the kingdom and how God will reign. He's talked about the people in it and what they can look forward to, and now he's narrowing the scope, but he's talking about the Savior. He's talking about the one who will make this all right. And he says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, right? My servant. I will have someone come who will enter into this story, enter into this big redemptive narrative. And he will come, he will be my servant. I'll put my spirit in him. I will hold him up. I will make sure that he is equipped to do what he needs to do. Then he says this, I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This servant is kind of one of those things that you, if you have any kind of background in the Bible at all, you kind of know, okay, this is, this is Isaiah talking about Jesus. Now, Isaiah has been doing that since the beginning of the book. He's been promising Christ to come. He's done that in many ways. He's promised that Christ will be born of a virgin. We saw that many chapters ago. We saw that he will, a lot of the things that are promised about Jesus, prophesied about Jesus. They haven't happened yet. And so as God begins to tell another promise, another future telling, if you will, prophecy about Jesus, he also reminds them, listen, I've kept my word all along. You can trust in these words. Just like I told you, if you didn't repent, I'd let the nations conquer you. And they did. Just as when I told you, if you return to me, I will save you. And Jerusalem returned to him, and they started to follow God under the leadership of Hezekiah, and God stopped the armies from completely destroying all of Judah. He just, he preserved the city of Jerusalem. And then when they wandered away again, God said, Babylon will come in and conquer you, and Babylon did. And then God said, okay, and I will deliver you out. He will actually name the deliverer ahead of time. His name is Cyrus the king of Persia, who will conquer Babylon and release the Jewish people. So God continues to tell the future and then make it happen. And not just allow it to happen, but cause it to happen. When they are disobedient, he causes the thing that will get them back. When they are obedient, he causes the protection that will keep them. And now he is promising in advance, listen, my servant will come. And he's saying, you know you can trust me because my word has been trustworthy all along. So then he really will ask today, so will you listen? Knowing all that, will you listen? So Isaiah begins to tell about Jesus. I'll put my spirit upon Jesus. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. This is, this is not a he won't speak or you won't know or that he won't tell other people. It's not like that. We can kind of get that idea in English. What they were talking about is when kings would come in and they would conquer a city, they would come in loudly and they would parade through the city their victories and they would yell it out and they would shout it out. Imagine this. It's that kind of thing that takes place as Jesus turns back towards Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they begin to yell, Hosanna, Hosanna the king, Right? What Isaiah is saying is, listen, 
My servant will come. My servant will set you free. My servant will be the one. I will put my spirit on him. I will give him, I will hold him up in my hands. I will make sure he has the strength and endurance to do what he is called to do. But he won't do it like a human ruler. He won't do it like a human king coming with a lot of noise. He won't be championing himself. In fact, he will be quietly just pointing to me. So God begins to unpack really details about who Jesus will be. Verse 3, it says this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Think back a couple chapters. Now, we've talked about this a couple times. God begins to proclaim the gospel to the nations, first through his people, but then to the rest of the nations. And he uses this image of mountains and valleys, and we've talked about this a couple weeks in a row now, that the gospel will level out the mountains and the valleys, meaning it will take those who are prideful and think, they're, think much of themselves, and it will humble them. And people that are lowly and feel like they're unlovable or unforgivable, it will lift them up. And that the gospel is an equalizer, if you will. The gospel is one where everybody comes to God equally separated from God by sin. That there are no good people and bad people, there's just sinful people. Right? And that's really good news for us, because no matter what we've done, we can understand we can be forgiven. Now, it's really bad news for you if you think you're really good. Right? that inherently you're super cool and God's lucky to have you, then it's bad news for you. For the rest of us that know we're all jacked up, it's good news. Here's what he says. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's saying this. God speaking through Isaiah saying, listen, when my Savior, my, my servant, when Jesus comes... He will come in humility. He will come in my strength, in my spirit, but he will come quietly, humbly, and he will come in such a way that he won't break you in your weakness. That if you, if you are frail, if you're in need of a savior and you understand that and you feel broken and you feel weak and you know there's no way you can fix the situation you're in, he's like a bruised reed he won't break or a smoldering wick, he won't extinguish that. He means this, no matter where you are, in the weakest of state, in, your, in, in the absence of God, with your most need for God, Jesus will come in such a way that it will lift you out of your circumstances and bring you to God. No matter how broken, no matter how empty, no matter how in need you are, Jesus meets you there. Again, you've got to see the contrast of other kings coming through and destroying people, destroying the weak, killing those who cannot stand up for themselves. And God says this, this is the opposite of that. This is the one who is almighty coming in tenderness. Verse 4, he will not go faint, grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Remember that coastlands is, we talked about this a week or two ago, that it's talking about the gospel going out beyond the people that are hearing it right now, beyond the, the hearers of Isaiah's words, that it'll go out to the other nations. Talking about this law, this, this governance 
by this servant, Jesus, will go beyond us. It will go to the world. He says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice. This idea of justice is really about making the things that are wrong, making them right. Think of, when we look at the world, just think of the corruption that we see, right? Again, it's a political season, right? We see all kinds of political campaigns and people running for positions, and it doesn't matter which side you're on or which TV channel you listen to, all you hear is how, how the other person is corrupt, right? You hear how they are, and it, if you just sit back for a minute, you kind of look at all the landscape, and you're like, they're all really corrupt, right? It was like, I don't see, I don't even know how an honest person would make it today. Well, that's a bad place to be, right? I still think it's the greatest nation on the earth. Well, let's just admit politics are kind of broken, right? And that people are corrupted. And he's saying that this, that Jesus will come and he will bring justice. He will bring the opposite of corruption. So let's do it this way, justice in the nations. God continually proclaims justice as a hallmark of his kingdom. This is about God remaking the world where corruption is eliminated and all that is right prevails. A world without idolatry or sin is a world where justice can reign. What are the idols in politics, right? Their power, their you know, economy, their wealth, their, all these things. It's those things that cause it to be corrupt, right? People that lobby for an opinion. They lobby for this thing or against this thing. Most of the times it's because they build this thing or that thing, right? Well, they make this so they want to lobby that you make it you know, you champion it. Or they make the opposing product, so they want to lobby for a bill that eliminates their competition. Well, corruption's about power. It's about money, right? And so what he's saying is he's, he's, he's contrasting all that this world sees. See, even though politics and things are done differently than we have the internet today and we have a different way of living, corruption's corruption. You go back three millennia, and they were just as corrupt. They just couldn't get their, their, their message out on a 24-7 news cycle or via the internet to the other side of the world. But corruption's corruption. They were fighting for power and wealth and all those things since there were three people on the world, right? And so a nation of justice or a kingdom of justice, Jesus will bring a place where corruption cannot be. That's what he's saying. Verse 5, thus says God the Lord, who created heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Again, God is going to do this over and over again. God is creator and I am the Lord. Those are the, that's the language that God is going to use over and over again. He does that because the biggest flaw in the people of God is that they begin to worship other things that they've, they've, they've been conquered by so many nations and surrounded by so many nations, and they've wanted the things of the world, the things that these other nations had, and so they, these cultures just crept into their worship. Some let them in, some didn't see them coming in, some welcomed them, some didn't. But the next, next thing you know is you have a people of God, or, or a people who are supposed to be the people of God, that are very syncretistic. They're, in other words, they, they worship kind of God and kind of something else right? That they've, they've blurred all this stuff together. And, and I say this, that's his emphasis. Remember, I'm the creator. Don't worship anything created. I made it. Worship me. And I am the Lord. That's all fake. I'm real. 
right? Those are all mute idols that can't talk, can't speak, can't see, can't do anything. And God has over and over mocked them and said, listen, remember, you know those little pieces of wood you got to make sure are really flat so they don't fall over? How do you worship that? Or your big golden idols that you do, you put silver chains on them all four corners so, again, they don't fall over. He's like, think, right? Like, I, you understand that you, and, I, and I'll never get this, I, I guess, but how do you make something with your own hands and then set it over here and then bow down to it? <laughs> like that, that's hard to understand, right? But we do it. But we do it with money. We do it with power. We do it with position. We do it with t- ego. We do all kinds of things, right? What's money, really? I mean, it's a little paper that we get that actually isn't worth, worth anything, we just trade people for it. Still man-made. Or educational degrees, right? I, I am a nerd. She said that earlier, right? Clearly, Nicole thinks I'm a nerd. So, uh, but education's important to me, right? But you can't worship that certificate, that little thing that says you have a doctorate in this, or a master's in this, or a bachelor's, or whatever. Again, it's created, So God continues to remind us, listen, I'm the creator, I'm not created. I am the Lord, everything else is false. And I'm the one that is going to make the world right. And you can trust me because I've been saying things for the future over and over again and they've all come true. You can believe in the things that are still yet to come true. Verse 6. I am the Lord, so he says it again. I have called you in righteousness. I take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So God proclaims, I am the Lord. And then he begins to speak directly to Jesus, who has not yet entered into human history. But he is speaking as if he is speaking. Now, clearly, God can be speaking to Jesus, who is eternal, right? So God can be speaking to him, but he's really speaking to him on our behalf so that we can see this dialogue between God the Father and God our Savior in Jesus Christ so that we can understand it. So imagine God the Father looks at Jesus and he says this, I will give you as a covenant to the, for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. I'm going to use you. I'm not going to make a covenant with you You are the covenant. Jesus is the covenant. Jesus doesn't just bring us a new covenant. Jesus is the covenant, right? He is the promise. He is it. On Sunday nights, as we're doing our essentials course, which if you did not get the email, we're not doing tonight. Don't show up. You can show up. We won't be here. But we've been talking about why we never leave the gospel. The gospel isn't something that introduces us to Jesus, and then we leave and we go accomplish it in some other way or with some other power or something else, right? But we never leave the gospel. It's the same. It's that Jesus is our covenant. Jesus is the satisfaction of all the things that are right and all the penalty for doing wrong. Jesus is it. And that by him entering into human history and living a sinless life and dying our death and then raising from the grave, he is the promise of the covenant. He is the symbol of the covenant. He is the sign that it's true. That Jesus would spend so much time after the resurrection revealing himself to hundreds of people was to remind us that he is the covenant. As we take communion a little bit later, Jesus will say, this cup is a covenant in my blood. Like, he is the covenant. 
And so God says, listen, you were the covenant. You will be a light to the nations. You will open the eyes that are blind, and you will bring prisoners out of the dungeon. So blindness and slavery are images. Jesus will establish a kingdom that glorifies God and proclaims his message to the world. Blindness and imprisonment are images of bondage and sin. The message of Jesus is one of liberation from that bondage. So there are images of blindness, that you are spiritually blind to see what's going on. There are images of being imprisoned, that you are trapped by your surroundings, that you are, you're a slave to your own sin, but that Jesus will come and he will open your eyes, that he will set the prisoner free, that he will heal, that he will redeem, that Jesus will liberate us from the things that sin does to ruin us. So verse 8, I am the Lord, so God says it again, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So God again takes aim at carved idols. And again, you've just got to ask yourself, because we see idolatry biblically as different, as removed from us, of something that happened thousands of years ago, but doesn't necessarily always happen today as frequently, or as commonly in America it doesn't. And so when you imagine people carving something or creating something out of gold or doing something like that, you have this image of idolatry. But look at all the other things we idolize in our lives. Right? Again, we've used power, wealth, you know, family can be an idol, right? Good things made by God can be an idol, right? When worshiped more, when you give more to that than you do to God, it becomes an idol, right? Anything that we put on the throne of our heart is an idol, whether that's our image or whatever. So it doesn't have to be something you made at home or bought or carved or whatever, but whatever you give yourself to. And one of those things they say is look at your calendar and look at your checkbook, right? Not that most of you write checks, but you get my point, right? Look at how you spend your money. Look at how you spend your time. I will show you what you worship, Right? That will show you what you give yourself for. Is it God? That's what he's saying. I am the Lord. Everything else is created. Everything else you give yourself to is created and won't last. Verse 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Again, he is saying this. Listen, I have told you the future before this, and it has come true. He's speaking to a generation of people that actually know this in their generation. He told of, of Cyrus of Persia liberating them, and he did. He told of the Babylonian captivity, and it happened. He told of the destruction of Israel and Judah, and it happened. He told of the protection of Jerusalem in that very same, in that, in that very same era, and he did protect Jerusalem. So he's reminding them, listen, as I've told you before, you can trust me again. I'm telling you something hasn't happened yet. You can trust me because I've always done what I said I was going to do. That's why we have a Bible, really. That we can know what God has said. That we can understand the gospel. We can understand our response to the gospel. But also that we can trust him and believe in him. And then we have all our stories, too right? Of how God has met us and how God has been faithful to us. 
And collectively, between the words of, of, of the Bible, which obviously we give author, is more authoritative, but also consider your lives as we look at the stories in the room of how God has met you and where God met you and how God has changed you, it gives us, it gives us hope to face tomorrow. That we look around at the stories and then we look back at the history of God doing what he said he would do and we should be encouraged and called forward. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. He says, sing to the Lord a new song and praise him from the end of the earth. This is a command for us to worship. We, we've been talking a lot about on Sunday nights, we've been talking about what is the gospel, what was the proclaimed message in the first century, and then what was the response of the people who heard it. So when you believed in Jesus, when you heard about Jesus, when you turned from you know, worshiping actual idols over to worshiping Jesus, what did that look like? What did they do? How did they understand what that meant to be? And we're saying, okay, there's a required response, if you will. There are things that God has called us to do, created us to do. This is one of them. We were created to be worshipers. The reason we struggle with idolatry so bad is because we were made to worship. We were made to worship God. Sin has corrupted that. And now we just give our hearts away to things that are not God way too easily. But we were created to worship. And so, yes, that's with our lives. Yes, that has an implication of every hour of every day. But now God is, is narrowing that and saying, listen, you who hear me right now, I want you to sing to me. I want you to sing and worship me and praise me. Remember, I am the creator. I am the true God. All else is false. All else is fake. All else is mute and impotent. Nothing else is deserving of your worship. This is why we worship in church. This is why, because God calls us to. Because God gives us a command that that's one of the ways that we worship God is that we, that we worship, that we sing songs. That we offer songs of worship, that's who God is. That we offer songs of praise, that's what God has done. It's the difference between his character and thanking him for his works. But that's our job. That we, one of the ways that we respond, in fact, that's why the service is built the way it is. That we open up with some worship, work through the message, and then we respond in worship. Because as God speaks and as God promises Jesus to the world before he ever came, he then tells them, now, if you hear me, get off your feet, man, worship, sing, get on your feet, do, like, stand and praise to me, sing a new song, sing worship, sing praise, tell me you love me, tell me you've renounced the idols of your past and that you are going to live for me because I created you and I am God. When we worship together, this is why. So a call to worship. God calls people to worship him in response to what he has done. We're given the command to worship and to praise God in songs. Because of what God has done for us, we have the opportunity to be obedient today as we worship together. Right? You don't just come to church to take from the church. And what I mean by that is you don't just come and get the pieces you desire and then bounce for the rest of the week. Like, you come here to be a part of a community, and you come here to worship God together. Right? That's, that's a part of what we do. That, that church isn't just what we receive, but it's what we also give. We give of our worship. We give of our finances and our tithes and our offerings. We give as we serve. 
Right? We're not, we're not called to pick some of those and choose, oh, well, you know, I serve so I don't give. Or I listen to the message and I read my Bible and I serve so I don't worship. No, he calls us to do all of it. But lives given over for him calls us to do all of it. And this is a place where he calls us to be obedient. Verse 11, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kadar inhabit. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Nations here going beyond the people of God, worshiping together. I know we get a little foretaste of that here, to be honest with you. We talked about this a lot. It's a, it's a fairly diverse church um, between, uh, between black and white and Asian, Hispanic. There's not really one dominant ethnicity. Depends on which Sunday, there might be a bigger number of this or the other. But we have a mix of that. Like the ends of the earth are gathered together here. I know we have, we have I know we talk, but we've got a, a couple Jewish people, and then most of us are not. That's a fulfillment of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles are all included, right? So we get that image here today that, that this has come true, that God has done this. And so we get to stand up and we get to worship God together as a fulfillment of this. When we're obedient, this takes place. The nations worship together when this takes place. Verse 13 says this, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Never mistake the fact that Jesus comes in humility and he comes to do it a way different than we might think humans lead or kings lead or do. That just because he did it differently because it doesn't mean he's not a mighty warrior. That's what God is saying, right? Don't let his, his humility, don't let his tenderness, don't let that fool you. Because he is the king of kings and he commands the host of hosts. He commands an army bigger than the armies of the world. He says, no, listen, don't mix this up. Don't confuse my kindness as weakness. I'm still God, and this is still my servant. Verse 14, for a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste to mountains and hills. I will dry up all their vegetation. I will turn their rivers into islands and dry up the pools. He said, listen, don't confuse this. Don't miss that I come to you in grace and love and mercy and miss the fact that I will wreck everything that doesn't return to me. That I will wipe out the earth that doesn't worship me. Don't confuse the kindness of God's message in the gospel to one that just says, oh, well, God is love. There's no hell. There's no judgment. Don't miss the point that God is still God. That what he says is, that our response, yes, we meet him through a gift of grace, but God is still judge too. So God is a mighty destroyer, as I know for you. God is gentle and kind with us, but that doesn't mean that he's not powerful. God promises to go out against evil like a mighty man of war. Never let the grace and mercy passages allow you to think, uh, allow you to think that God does not judge wickedness and injustice. Sorry about the typo. I want to put, um, would, you, uh, would you put verse 6 and 7 up for me, please, from earlier, the next slide? I want to put this up, just leave this. We just read this verse. Now I want to read the next one. So read with me verse 16 in, in chapter 42. It says this, 
And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Hold that thought. We just read this. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. That's him speaking to Jesus. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now he comes back, and now he's not speaking to Jesus. He's speaking to us. But he's saying the very same things, right? You see the parallel between the verses. Understand this. As Jesus comes, and he lives here, and we get to see him, and we begin to worship him, we're transformed to look more like him. And then the command is for us to live like Jesus did, right? So it goes from this is who Jesus is to this. Let's read our verse over. Verse 16, and I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. That's us. You who were once spiritually blind, who can now see because of Jesus, now I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you in a new way, right? God's saying, listen, once you're transformed by Christ, I'm going to use you to continue the ministry, to fulfill what I gave Jesus, right? In a blind, the way they do not know, in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. He's calling all of us to look like Christ. To, to be saved in Jesus is to be transformed in Christ. To be transformed in Christ is to join Christ in his mission. So Jesus fulfills God's promises. Your next note. Jesus accomplishes God's promises in us and calls us to join his work. We who were once blind and afflicted, who are now set free in Christ, go back into a dark and enslaved world. We bring light and redemption. See, Jesus fulfilled this. He fulfilled it in his life and death and resurrection and then ascended back to heaven, pours out his spirit on us and says, listen, now you're the church. You're the people of God until I return. Now you do what I did. You go be what I was when I was here. I empower you. Now, now go and do this. So we, be, we get to become like Christ to the world around us, flawed and broken and all jacked up as we are. We get to be useful in that, that we get to look like Jesus and share him with the world. Verse 17 says, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to the metal images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look, you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one, or is blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. God has continued down this path of calling people away from idolatry. And he's really, he's using that and reminding them, listen, when you take something and you carve eyeballs into it, and you carve ears into it, and you carve a mouth into it, and you carve little hands on it, it still can't talk, see, hear, smell, or touch you. Like, it still can't move. And when you begin to worship these idols, you begin to be like them. And all of a sudden, you can't see either. And all of a sudden, you don't hear me anymore. And all of a sudden, you're just, you've become like the mutant, evident idols that you worship. So he says, don't do that. Return to me. Be mine. Modern-day idolatry. Ezekiel 14 says this. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and they set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be corrupted and uh, consulted by them? He's saying this, listen, now 
Idols begin to be taken into the heart. Like we said earlier, it doesn't have to be a little thing you bow down to or light incense to or do something. Now we take all our idols into our hearts. And inside our hearts, we store away the things that we put in the place of God. Again, the place of power, corruption, strength, wealth, family, pride, ego, all those things. We just live those out in our heart now. We don't have to make little carved idols. We've got them all stacked up in our hearts. Verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted and all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will, it, uh, will attend and listen for a time to come? There's that call of God, and we get to hear that today. So who's going to listen? God says, I've done everything necessary for you to follow me. I transform you. I empower you. I call you. I heal you. I redeem you. I adopt you into my family, make you mine. And I'm saying all you do is you turn from all those things that could never satisfy you in the past anyhow, for all those things that have failed you before, I'm just saying leave them behind and come and worship me. And he says, who's listening? Who will hear me today? Verse 24 says this. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the might of his battle. It set on him and it burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So God sovereignly gave his people over to Babylon. He says, listen, because you didn't listen, because you didn't hear, because you didn't return, I gave you over. I'm going to pause there for the day, and I just want to say this. I want to, I want to close with this. Who's going to listen today? Who of us is going to sit here and say, you know what? I store things up in my heart that end up taking the place of God in my life, that I give my time and my money, my energy and my thought. I give myself to this, and this isn't God. This is something created, and this won't satisfy me anyhow. My job can't satisfy me. No matter how important I am, it'll never satisfy me. And when we hear that God says, I want you to come and return to me. John Calvin famously, like 500 years ago, wrote that our hearts are factories for idols. That they just churn out idol after idol after idol after idol. We truly have to guard our hearts. That in Christ, through the Spirit, that we have the power to overcome that we have the power to worship God today. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You entered into our story. You created us. You loved us. You caused us to be, and then you called us to live lives that glorify you. And then sin entered into the story, and it severed that relationship. And rather than giving us our just punishment, letting us go, letting us feel the impact and the results of our bad choices and our sin, you loved us too much to do that. And so you entered into our story. You came in and put on flesh. You became fully human, fully divine. And you lived the life we were called to live, and you died the death that we deserve that you did so to take our place. As you were buried in the ground, proving you were dead, you then rose from the grave, proving that you give life. 
that wherever we are, whatever we're trapped in, that you can make it new, that you give life. You promised us through baptism that we receive your spirit and that we can live the way you've called us to live. Flawed as it might be, we can still do it. Forgive us that we, we give ourselves to other things. Forgive us that we worship other things more than we worship you or in place of worshiping you. I pray that today we would, we would take the challenge to be hearers. God, that we would hear your word, that we would live it out in our lives. Help us to be reflective, a bit contemplative as we've come forward to communion. Help us to search our hearts first, asking what it is that we need to lay down in front of you because all of us have things we need to repent of. All of us have idols in our life that we need to lay down. None of us are exempt, God. Let that be this time as we respond to you. Let that be this moment that we search our hearts and we we lay down something that's in the way of our worship. And then I pray that we would that we would sing songs of worship, that we would sing songs of praise to you. Whether we're great singers or terrible singers, whether we love singing or don't love singing, it doesn't matter that we would proclaim those words that you are deserving of. Help us to worship you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.